All right, welcome and thank you everyone for joining us for another segment in the Jane Irrigation Training Series and really excited about the presentation today. Uh, we're talking about processing tomatoes and how a grower can get uh, better than 60 tons out of an acre. And when I start to think about those numbers, you know, I, it, it's really kind of mind boggling, right? My head kind of swims thinking about all the responsibility, all the investment to uh, actually succeed there. And as we've talked a lot before in years in which uh, crop yields are strong or big, uh, sometimes it affects pricing uh, to the negative side. So sometimes on the best years for production, this is what can hurt the growers uh, the most. So of course, every year you wanna have the biggest yields, but uh, especially in, in, in years where the um, uh, production is up. So today we've got Corey Rod uh, talking to us again about how growers can use technology to make sure they're hitting the best yields. You know, they wanna be at the, the top quadrant of growers uh, every year, year in, year out, so they can be the most uh, profitable and, and most successful and, and uh, be a successful operation. And, um, you know, I mentioned Corey again, you know, he's somebody who's been on here before. If you've seen Corey, he's a great presenter. Uh, more importantly, you know, Corey's grown up in the uh, Central Valley area, spent his whole life there, uh, really is passionate about agriculture uh, and has really committed himself, not just uh, from a professional standpoint, but from a personal standpoint as well. I know that, uh, you know, Corey really focuses on helping uh, growers achieve success I know if I was gonna start growing in the Central Valley tomorrow, Corey would be my first call today, uh, not just for his knowledge, but he brings a whole resource of knowledge to you that he's willing to share. And I really encourage all of you to uh, lean on Corey because this is what gets him up in the morning is helping people. And, uh, and that's really exciting to see. So uh, with that, I wanna say, Corey, I think we're in harvest right now for processing tomatoes. And I'm just wondering, Corey, how, how, how's the pricing out there? And, and, and welcome for joining us today. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate the introduction. And uh, yeah, we are, in, I guess you could say the middle of tomato harvest at this point. It's uh, kind of a long season. We start planting at the south end of the state or the valley and then moving north and then kind of reverse, go back down south and, and start harvesting. So it's a bit of a long season. It's, uh, it's planned out appropriately. Uh, the canneries only have so much opportunities to take and move products at one time. So it's moving well. The pricing, there's no official price for uh, many growers. There's a talk around 76 to $78 a ton is what we're hearing. And uh, again, it's, it's not maybe what we've seen in five years ago, six years ago, but still a, a competitive price. But one of the things that maybe you can control is your production. And so I wanted to take the opportunity today to talk about the market and talk about uh, kind of some keys into getting that production number up. Yeah, thanks, Corey. That's a great point, right? Control what you can control. Uh, the pricing is going to do what it's going to do. Um, you can control your production. So uh, that, that's great. Can't wait to get into it. For those of you watching, if you have questions, please feel free to share those in the, uh, the Q&A or in the chat box. Uh, I'll be watching both and passing those questions on to Corey. Well, thank you all for joining again. And uh, before kind of going into the keys on the production side, I wanted to just talk about the market overview in general. So uh, this season, 2020, we're looking at about 235,000 acres under contract for processing tomatoes. Most acres end up under contract. Um, and again, 
the number is down a little bit from where we've been over the last five years, but that's a, a marketing balance approach uh, due to a number of, of factors. The last one, again, being its export um, availability, which you can see at the bottom point here, uh, plays into this market really well. But uh, again, this year we're looking at an expected state average of uh, just over 51 tons per acre. And it's amazing, you look back just to 2006 and it was near 40 tons per acre. So some pretty significant uh, improvements in production per acre. And a lot of that's due to our better varieties that we're able to plant and uh, come out of the greenhouse. And then also the increased use of efficient irrigation. Drip irrigation has grown significantly in this market. And it's one of the factors that's really helped that production. And then again, I talked about that marketability of that crop. Uh, nearly 25% of all these tomatoes are exported to other countries annually. And a big taker of that is the European Union. So when you see things like a strong dollar, a strong economy, is sometimes it's hard to move that product uh, into other markets. So it's kind of a balance of give and take. Um, but going forward, it's, it will continue to remain a, a strong market for this uh, economy here in the Central Valley. It's annually about a billion dollar uh, activity from a field value standpoint. So again, working with growers uh, up and down the San Joaquin Valley here, I, I think kind of developed some takeaways and in, in many conversations. I was with a tomato grower yesterday looking at, at some different things We're about a week away from harvesting and talking about stuff. And again, I've tried to put together kind of five key points on what I think will help you increase your production and really target that 60 tons per acre, but also maybe even farther than that. I know there are guys that have been in the 70s and there's even the, the bigger fish that was 80 that uh, nobody's really seen, but it's, it's definitely possible. And so really the five things I want to hit home today are proper field preparation, your irrigation system design and layout, fertility management, irrigation management, and then data collection. Um, but the last word, implementation as well. So going into it, starting with proper field prep, again, I think we know that in agriculture, this season's success kind of depends on what we've done in the past, uh, could be even the previous calendar year before. So one of the things that I always recommend to growers in the off season is check your irrigation system performance. Um, you can see a picture here on the left side, the field's wide open. So now's a great time to get in there. If you have to dig up any tape or you have to look at emitters, now's the time to do it. And uh, again, you can check that system if it's a single use tape, but you really need to check it, especially if it's a multi-year tape. And uh, the reason is, is you can have plugging and different things that can get in there. And so look at your system flow rate, know what that's supposed to be, but also look at your tape flow rate and understand if it's rated in gallons per minute per hundred feet or gallons per hour per emitter, like a thin wall emitter line. Um, that's a common misconception that I run into with many growers out in the field. They say it's 0.25 and I say, well, 0.25 what? And they say, well, gallons per hour. And I'm like, well, that seems to be a little high based on your system design. And so we walk through it. So it's important to really know that. And again, kind of study it and, and check it before you plant a crop. And then of course, now would be a great time to do field pressure testing uh, when before there's a crop in the field. So check your lines, beginning, middle and end. Just get some base numbers. You don't have to go through and do an entire DU test, but just get a pulse, get an idea of what's going on with your system. And then something that's maybe a little less scientific, but helpful as well when there's no crop cover is doing a visual wetting of the plant beds. So if you run an eight or a 12 hour set and see how the water subs up or see how it moves laterally across the bed, it's gonna give you an idea of, hey, you know what? I saw something different over here, what is it? 
and you can go over and could be an irrigation system issue, could be a soil difference, a number of things, but it, it just gives you an idea to go look at something and say, you know what, this is an area of interest to me. And then again, uh, I think most growers know, but let's implement our weed management activities ahead of time, pre-emergent applications. Uh, many growers use fumigation, so KPAM, VAPAM, et cetera. Uh, make sure we get in there and get that done. And then of course, ensure proper moisture in the bed structure uh, for transplanting. Not having these two things can reduce your yield day one. I mean, you go and you put those baby plants in the ground and you never really know what the weather's gonna be like depending on your plant date. And so you want to make sure that there's good structure for those transplants to sink into and then also good moisture for them as well. Hey, Corey, I've gotten calls before, you know, where people call me and say, uh, hey, what did I buy? What did I install? Right. They don't keep good records of what uh, what, what they actually uh, put, put in the ground as far as tape or uh, emitter line. Uh, you have any tips on that or uh, ways that people could be helpful with that? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you can't keep your record or you can't peel the label maybe off of the coil, I know all of our emitter line, which is our hard hose tubing that might go in like an orchard or a vineyard, they all have a tag at the end. I always recommend growers when you install a new field, cut a tag off, uh, label it, put a sticky note on it, put it in a filing cabinet and know that that's uh, field 24A and then this is what's in there. Uh, same thing with tape. It has a sticker right on the coil of tape. So if you just peel that sticker off, put it in a folder and put it in there and now you have that record for life. If you don't have that, um, honestly, you can get a hold of me. I literally had a dealer call me yesterday and say, hey, I pulled this out of a field. I don't know what it is. Can you help me? And he cut it in half for me, sent me a picture and within two minutes, I told him what the flow rate was and what the product was. So yeah, that's great help. Thanks, Corey. Of course. So uh, stepping into our second key here with irrigation system design and layout, I think uh, goes without saying, but without an effective irrigation design, going into fertility management, irrigation management later, it's probably not even worthwhile. So let's make sure we have a good design up front. Um, we talked about kind of the retrospect in the market. In 2001, just 2% of the acres were using drip irrigation in California. By 2012, that number had jumped to 78%, and I know it's even higher today. And uh, just because you implement drip irrigation doesn't mean that it's maybe even the best at this point, because you need to follow some of these parameters here on this irrigation design. And I think, again, it goes without saying, but you want a good DU, distribution uniformity. You want that number to be above 90% out of the box, 100%. Uh, your dealer should be able to provide that for you. They should provide it for you on every design they do. And then when they do design it and lay it out, you wanna make sure you have manageable block sizes. And that really bleeds into some of the other points. If you have oversized blocks or large management areas, it's gonna be more challenging to get adequate flow and pressure. And that goes with the layout in order to get a good flush on that tape. And then we talk about PSI, which is energy, it's pressure. You're paying to make that. You wanna have a minimal loss, which is gonna help with your DEU on a non-compensating product. But again, it's a cost that you're paying for every time you turn on that pump. You see the irrigation system to the left that's being installed. That's a purchased product that's sitting in the field for 10, 15, 20 years. Amortize that over its life versus the increased cost of energy. And last time I checked, energy is not going down in price. So make sure you design it right up front. And then uh, of course, filtration is an important topic. I'll get into that in a moment. And then also drip tape selection can be really key. 
talking a little bit more about flushing, it needs to be done even if there's only a single season drip tape being used. Uh, I have this video playing in the background and this is a video I shot two years ago. And this was after I would say almost six months of irrigation out in the field. And the grower said, hey, I'm starting to see some plugging. Can you take a look at this? And I went out and I realized that the ends of the lines were tied in knots. And I started looking around and realizing that they never actually flushed this tape. So when I approached the grower about it, he said, well, it's a single use tape. I didn't realize I needed to flush. And I said, okay, well, I can understand how you got there, but um, really it still needs to be flushed because again, your water quality um, can really impact that tape, no matter um, what your layout is or your system specifications. And so just when I talk about flushing though, it doesn't mean just opening up the ends of the lines during a normal irrigation event and running it for a couple of minutes. Um, that's probably not effective in most cases. Again, there's a link here that shows our length of run calculator. It actually has a flushing app built into it as well. So it can tell you based on your product and your run lengths, how much pressure you need and how much time you need in order to evacuate that material from your line properly. And filtration, again, is another important topic. It was so important that we did one of these webinars on it about a month ago. So there's a link down here at the bottom. It's available on YouTube. I know Richard and I were talking about our podcast format as well. It's available uh, to listen to there. And you can see some of the different things that we uh, offer at Jane Irrigation to help you with filtration. So please don't forget that. Corey, that was an amazing video. Um, I can't believe the difference, you know, start to finish. Um, what is the filtration requirement uh, for this tape? So it, it varies on, on the products. I think the best place to start is you looking at what most people are doing in the market. And so when you look at filtration, most people are using a number 20 media in their sand media filtration systems. And so that's going to get you around that 200 mesh filtration, depending on the quality of that media. It's important to not only buy a good filter, but the actual media that you're putting in there, the element needs to be of good quality as well. And that'll help uh, keep a nice tight mesh uh, filtration, but also that media needs to be serviced and replaced. Um, again, it varies with flow rate and product style. Our Cascade uh, thin wall emitter line drippers um, can be you know, ran with 120 mesh filtration. Some other tapes go all the way up to 200. So it, it's a big varying, um, scale, but most people tend to use a number 20 media to effectively uh, filter their tape. Yeah, great, thank you. Of course. So stepping into that design calculator that I referenced to earlier, this is a free resource. It's online on our website. Growers can use it, dealers, farm managers. I use it all the time working with guys. And so I kind of ran an example here of a product that I sell quite a bit of. So I used our Cascade thin wall emitter line. It's a seven eighths inch diameter a 12 inch emitter spacing, and then I used a 0.13 gallon per hour dripper. So I plugged in 12 PSI at the head end of the tape. I'm running at 1,280 feet, which is a normal run length here for us in the Central Valley. So you can see down here in the, kind of the middle columns or brackets, we have 12 PSI at the beginning. We have just under nine at the end. Our average flow rate is 0.13 during uh, that line of tape. So that's great because that's our nominal spec. So if we're trying to schedule irrigations, that'll be helpful. And then our low end is 0.12 gallons per hour, so pretty tight. And then you can see our emission uniformities um, as well as the travel time and flow rate for that lateral. 
But at the very bottom, as I alluded to earlier, there's a flushing part to this and there's a few options. I picked two feet per second, which is on the higher end of velocity. But just to kind of illustrate the point, if you use this product in a 1,280 foot application, you're gonna need 28 PSI at the head end of that tape in order to evacuate that material appropriately. So again, maybe you decided to go with a thinner tape and you went with an eight mil instead of a 13 mil or a 15 mil. And now you actually can't flush that tape because the pressure rating on the tape is lower because it's thinner. So it's always important to study different manufacturers' pressure ratings, but also the differences between the mill thicknesses as well. Into talking about tape selection, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about too is at Junior Irrigation, we have kind of a unique uh, setup. We have three different styles of drip tape or thin wall emitter line. And your drip tape selection could be just as important as the variety that you're planting in your field. And so each of these products offers a different uh, advantage. And just kind of briefly skimming through it, if you look at our cascade, it's our discrete emitter thin wall um, emitter line. So it has multiple flow rate options and basically near unlimited customization as far as spacing goes, because we're placing that emitter in the tape wherever you want. And so again, I have growers that range from 0.13 gallons per hour to 0.26 and a few other flow rates in between, but we have even higher ones than that. Uh, stepping into our Chapin style products, DTF and Deluxe, it's a continuous flow path style tape. And what's unique about this product is it has the industry's highest tensile strength. So it goes into the ground really well and it comes out really well. So you gain some efficiencies when you're doing tape installations and tape removals. And then Turbo Tape is really a unique product in that it's ultra low flow options and tight spacings uh, really allow us to get down. We can go to 0.17 gallons per minute per 100 feet, which is really, really low flow. And we can get to a six inch emitter spacing. So if you need to uh, maybe tighten up uh, some of your tape spacings in your field, uh, due to a number of different things, you can do that with this product without sacrificing any pluggability or things like that. So stepping into fertility management, um, I think as most people know, NP and K are going to be key elements in any cropping system. Um, this is some information that I pulled from the UC Vegetable Research and Information Center. Um, it's a great tool. I encourage anybody who's growing vegetables in any market to take a look at this. There's a lot of good information there that the UC puts out. But looking at the nutrient requirements or what is actually pulled into the fruit, uh, starting with nitrogen, we're three to four pounds per ton. And then phosphorus is a little bit low with 0.4 to 0.5 uh, pounds per ton of fruit. But tomatoes are actually a very heavy potassium feeder. So going into potassium, you can see it could be as high as six pounds per ton of fruit. And what's important to note is that this nutrient uptake really um, is highlighted in the four to 10 week period after you've transplanted. Most of these transplants are put in with some moisture already in the ground, but they're also watered in and they actually have a starter fertilizer put in with them too. So uh, while those plants are getting established, it may not be beneficial to put uh, nutrients on early, but then once you get into that four to 10 week window, it'd be time to, to get going. Uh, calcium is another one that we don't wanna miss with tomatoes. It's really important in skin uh, fruit tension and then also reduces blossom end rot. And then it can also actually help water move through the plant. It's a structural component of cells. And so calcium can also help your soil. So that's another key thing here because we're farming the soil as well. And so you wanna be able to look at that and say, hey, 
Uh, I need to make sure I don't have any salt buildup in my soil and I want to make sure that I get water through the soil to the roots. And so calcium can help you do that. Sodium is one of those things that causes what we call deflocculation in the soil. That can reduce infiltration rates. It can cause uh, soil crusting, a uh, number of different issues for plants. Yeah, Corey, I'm not familiar with that term, deflocculation. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more? What, what, what's happening there? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a spin-off of the, the word uh, flocculating or flocculation. And, and basically when you look at deflocculation, it's a breakdown of soil aggregates. It's a negative impact on structure. Um, to really like put it simply, the best way to say is that um, there are good cations <laughs> and there are bad ones. Um, the most simple way to break it down is uh, calcium and magnesium. Those are the, the structures that you want to see, the elements you want to see in your soil. Sodium is definitely not one. I know when the doctor says, hey, you know, you got too much sodium, which obviously is sodium chloride, um, they, they get after you a little bit. So those are the kind of the things that we want to see. So to simply put, it's just um, a breakdown of the soil structure. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So continuing with fertility management, again, I, most people probably know this, but it's worth saying the benefits of applying nitrogen with drip irrigation are gonna be those precise applications and that reduce, re, reduced risk of leaching. Uh, we all know that nitrates move with water. So uh, putting on heavy water applications with maybe an overhead sprinkler or even a, a furrow irrigation event could displace those nutrients pretty easily. Again, phosphorus is pretty tricky to apply in drip irrigation. And, the reason is, is it tends to precipitate with uh, different compounds. So it's kind of a, a risk to put in your system sometimes. So most growers tend to put that in as a pre-plant application. The other reason is, is that uh, pea availability, so what is actually available to the plant is really affected by a number of factors, which are soil temp and pH and texture. So putting in a little bit earlier can allow it to break down and, and become more plant available. And we talked about those numbers earlier. It's a fairly number, uh, low number in the fruit itself. So just get it in and, and let it sit and, and do its thing. And then looking again at potassium, it can get tied up in the soil. So applying it uh, through drip will be a way to make it more plant available immediately. And I threw up a little infographic here. You can find these online. Uh, this is just a, a different nutrient availability uh, based on pH. So you can see a range of four to 10 at the bottom. And uh, this is just another thing that people should be looking at when thinking about how to balance all these different things out and um, why working with, you know, certified crop advisor and folks like that is uh, really important. So stepping into irrigation management, um, managing your irrigation system is simply not turning off on your pump. I think it's important to note that because um, I've run into some people that, you know, say, well, they're irrigation managers and they're just turning off and on water, but I think there's a lot more to it. And we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time going through that. Um, but it's important to kind of know where you, where you need to be. And so tomatoes have an average or expected water use of about 30 inches here in the Central Valley. Um, that can change based on a number of factors, but it's a good starting spot. And then uh, you want to consider that peak ETC, which is crop demand for water, is around 75% of the ground cover. So again, you've got to just know, you know, where's my peak going to be? What's my total or my average going to be? So you can plan for these things. And then you have to remember that where you plant, when you plant, and when you harvest is really going to affect it too. If you're on an early contract and the weather's maybe a little bit cooler, longer in the spring than normal, then maybe your overall water demand won't be as high. 
but then as we discussed earlier in this, it's going to be 108 again uh, by Saturday, uh, maybe Sunday, and I have a grower who's still probably another 10 days away from harvesting, so his water use is probably going to go up quite a bit. Um, I've even seen two fields next to each other that used over two inches difference in water just based on timing. So um, it's really important to be able to calculate that and know that going into it. Uh, one of the things I always tell growers, the first step in managing your irrigation system is knowing your system application rate. It should be on every design that you get done for an irrigation system, and it's something you should know. I put up a little thing here for you guys to be able to uh, keep track of this on, on your own. If you just take your gallons per minute per acre and you divide it by a constant of 452.6, you're going to get your gross inches per hour applied of water. And that's a great starting spot and really help you with irrigation scheduling. So Corey, if I have a challenge with the math there or just, you know, getting it right or I'm not, just not sure, is this something I can reach out to get help from you on? Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, we have plenty of qualified people here at Gene Irrigation. It's something that I've spent a ton of time studying and uh, being able to work on as a certified irrigation designer and ag specialist, et cetera. So uh, please feel free to reach out. Um, I did want to walk through an example to try and help everybody um, kind of see the angle of that as well, um, but always available. So uh, stepping into the example, you can see we have a flow meter here on the left and it's reading at 1,266 gallons per minute. And so I took that and I said, okay, well, we're irrigating 55 acres. So that's 23 gallons per minute per acre. And if you divide that by the constant, you get 0.05 inches per hour. I took a DU number that I think would be acceptable. And so I just kind of assumed that one for the sake of this um, conversation. So 91% or 0.91, and you'll see that here in a moment. And now we got to think about irrigation scheduling. So if you take your ETO, which is your reference ET, and the crop coefficient information, you create your ETC, which is the water use for the crop. And so looking at like a weekly schedule, we have a seven day period and I just assumed an ETC of 1.65 inches. Divide that by our DU because it's a degrading factor. And then you divide that by your application rate. You end up with you know, 36.26 hours of irrigation required to match ETC. So now the next question is, Richard, do we just irrigate for 36 hours straight and come back later? I think people would like to, but probably not the best way to even run your sprinkler system at your house. So um, the answer is likely no, but to really be able to dive into that, you need to understand your soil structure, your crop root zone and soil profile. So I know anybody who's taken a soils class, you'll love seeing the soils triangle on the left-hand side. Um, it's still something that I deal with a lot today. Um, but again, please take a soil sample uh, in any field that you're farming, send it to a lab. These labs can give you all kinds of recommendations. They'll even give you uh, recommendations on soil water holding capacity. And then this can allow you to consult your CCA, your certified aggregation specialist, or your, even your irrigation designer. They can walk you through a soils program, different water management options. Um, another thing you can do on your own too is implement soil and moisture probes into the ground. And it gives you an idea to see how deep your irrigation events are going. Also shows you how the soil is wetting and drying. And so I wanted to take it one step further. I chose a sandy loam soil for the profile. And this is a chart that you can find online. There's several of them. They're all pretty close to each other, but it's just a different textual class of soils and what the average or estimated water holding capacity is per foot of soil. So I chose a sandy loam and I assumed 1.3 inches per foot of water holding capacity. 
We multiply that by our root zone area, and in this case, I just chose 18 inches an obligatory number. When you put that together, you're just under two inches of water holding capacity. Now you divide that by your application rate, says, hey, I could run 42, almost 43 hours of irrigation without overfilling. Now, based on that, Richard, you say, oh, you said 36, so 43, we can irrigate straight through. Okay, yeah, but there's probably a little bit more to it even than that. So that's assuming a completely empty or dry soil profile. So irrigating 36 hours straight is gonna displace any moisture that you have currently and push it down below the root zone. And you paid to put that moisture there because you pumped it and pressurized it and put it through all that drip tape you spent money on. So let's leave it where it is and make sure that it's just maintained appropriately. Also, we talked about all those nutrients that we were gonna apply through the drip and trying to keep them there and the amount that we needed. You paid for all those too. So let's make sure that we don't displace any of those nutrients out of the profile as well. And then you need to consider how quickly um, things tend to uh, move laterally across the bed, but also up to the surface. In late season, if you've got tomatoes, you don't, you don't wanna get them wet, start causing extra rot and things like that in the field. So that's just a, an example of, of how all the things that I do on a daily basis and um, how a proper irrigation schedule can be made. I'll show you a tool a little bit later that'll make that even easier for you. Um, but uh, for the last part of irrigation management, late season, there's a few different factors that are competing with each other. I told you that I have a friend who's going to harvest in um, about seven to 10 days. It's going to be 108 degrees this weekend. He's got a lot of things on his mind on how to balance this out. That's why we had a conversation yesterday. And again, we want to uh, apply stress to this crop right now. We want to build those solids inside the fruit. We want to induce maturity across the field. But there's a balance between the quality that we just talked about and potential yield decline by burning up plants. So um, keep that in mind, late season, stay on top of that. And then also drip tape management is really important. And I say that from the aspect of tomatoes are really aggressive on the rooting system and they can get in and they can plug emitters. There are many growers that use chlorine and or acid at different times um, to make sure that you know, they help prevent root intrusion uh, removal or remediation of roots from emitters is possible, but it's very difficult. So we want to avoid that. We want to keep that area as wet as much as possible. Hey, Corey, we, we have a question here from uh, one of the viewers, and they're asking, root intrusion is a real concern at the beginning of the season. Is this something I still have to worry about towards the end of the season? Yeah, it's, it's really from the moment that there's something growing in that field, you need to consider it. Um, when you think about it late in the season, like I said, you have uh, a plant that's probably pretty thirsty at this point. Hopefully you've set 60 plus tons worth of crop. And so it's going to be looking for it. But even early on in the season, if you get a little bit behind on watering or you decided to do the 36 hour approach and by the seventh day that soil profile is starved out before you come back again, those roots are going to be looking for that water. And uh, the last place that the area dries out is around the emitter. So the roots could definitely invade that area. So really across the entire season, you wanna manage this. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. So going into our last key here, talk about data and information collection, but also implementation. And that's something that I'll hammer home over the next few slides. Um, what I find unique is that growers are collecting all kinds of data and they know a lot of this very well. It's their operation, it's their livelihood but you're looking at the number of plants that you have per acre because you paid for them to put them in the ground. You're looking at your yield per acre because that's what's paying you. And then you're budgeting fertilizer, you're budgeting chemical, field equipment, labor, 
Are you collecting information on your irrigation systems, the water you're applying? Are you sure why you're applying that amount? And again, the ability to collect information on irrigation is so easy today. It's way easier than you think, and the payback is really strong. I know the growers are worried about controlling costs across their operation, but I tend to find that irrigation gets overlooked based on some assumptions. And we talked about you know, having a 30-inch expected water use. And I've had a grower tell me, my tomatoes take two and a half acre feet. And I say, well, is every field the same? And then that bleeds into that conversation. I told you about two fields next to each other using two inches difference water in the same season. And then uh, a conversation that's changing more and more every day with water availability. But I even have growers today that still say, hey, my water is cheap. And I say, well, that's fine as your labor. And so we all know that that's probably not the case, especially in California. So one of the ways that we can um, collect data, but also drive management decisions is the use of satellite technology. So uh, again, I wanna talk about getting a full field view, but analytics to drive those management decisions. And satellites allow you to look at a few different things uh, from our offer here at Jane Irrigation with our partnership with AgriLogics, we can look at actual crop water use by field, the crop vigor in each field, and then changes in crop health. And that could be due to irrigation system plugging. We talked about root intrusion, uh, maybe a lack of filtration or a lack of flushing. Could be irrigation management. Could be that 36-hour irrigation set that once a week that maybe wasn't the right way to go instead of two 18s or three uh, 12s. And then disease pressure, pest pressure, but it gives you an idea of where to look in the field. And hopefully you can narrow down, find something, and then create a management action right out of that. And it's a sensorless technology it could be implemented immediately. I could turn on anybody's field right now and they could be getting reports within a week. And then from that, it's also really important for people who are farming leased ground because you're not investing in that ground. This can follow a following or crop rotation. It can follow a lease agreement and it's super cost effective. It could be as low as a dollar per acre per month, depending on what you, how many, how many acres and what you put in. I can't believe how, uh, how, um, affordable that uh, price is, Corey. Um, one of our viewers wants to know though, the, these images, are they actual images that are on that slide? And what's the difference between them? What's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So these are actual images. And so the top one is our Hyperview report, which is uh, crop vigor, um, and as well as a number of other analytics. But basically it's showing you fields with invariability in that field based on plant vigor, which is a correlative response of plant health. And so maybe you see in the, the top right corner there, there's some yellowing that's starting to show up. Well, what is that? Well, um, oh, you know what? That's where we, we know we have um, a sandy streak and we know it dries out faster and kind of not a lot we can do. Or, man, Richard, I don't know what that is, but you know what? I'm going to go take a look at that today. Oh, it's plugging. Oh, it's it could be a number of things, but it's just telling you where to look and what is going on to the plant in the process. And then the bottom image is our ETC mapping. That's our hyper grow. Again, it gives you analytics, but I'm able to tell you the actual water use of that entire field for that crop for that period of time. So again, we're building our own ETO and our KC curves and providing that for you. Instead of doing all that math that we were talking about earlier, you can pull all this together and it's gonna tell you, hey, Richard, you know what? You need to irrigate 36 hours this week and you probably need to do it in this many sets. 
Yeah. So really, really powerful information. And so then even if I'm looking at uh, maybe um, uh, different types of fertilizer, you were talking about the calcium and, and applications of, uh, I'd, I'd actually see some of that through these uh, images. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, again, anything that's really uh, fat responsive as far as a nutrient goes, you, you can you can see that. Um, I've actually have a lot of this on permanent crop acreage, and we talked about the wildfires before this and the smoke. And I've actually seen the impact of the smoke on crop vigor and uh, actual crop water use because the UV uh, influx off the ground and things like that that really hasn't uh, hasn't affected um, or has affected the crop itself. Yeah, so that's amazing and cool. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, again, taking it a step further, um, I talked about our GeneLogic platform. So of course, that's built on uh, the ability to have irrigation control, but also monitoring. So implementing a soil moisture probe can be really valuable for your operation. And the data that you can get from that is the soil water status, how much water is available, when you should irrigate, but also how long to irrigate, um, again, because if we go and we run a 36 hour set and we see the infiltration chart, which I posted down there on the bottom right, if it's getting below um, our targeted root zone, well then we know that running 36 hours straight is too long. And so again, we're giving you how much to irrigate, but also how long to irrigate in a single set. And again, we talked about saving labor. You can try and maximize those irrigation sets. And then uh, something that's also really unique is our ability to incorporate EC monitoring into this and so that allows allows us to view soil water salinity and there's a correlation between EC levels and fertigation events in most cases and so what's really neat is you can see where your fertilizer is landing in relation to your root zone as well by tracking EC. It's a really powerful uh, nutrient use efficiency application here and then again the point I really wanted to hammer home is data that drives management decisions is what pays for itself. Everybody promises you data and they promise you a lot of it and the cleanest and the coolest data, but what do you do with it? I hand you a stack of papers and say, here you go. It probably doesn't help you. Everything that we do here from a data management standpoint at Jane helps you achieve water savings, labor savings, fertilizer savings. We talked about drip tape management. Amortizing your tape over three years versus four years can save you a lot of money because you know what? Maybe you avoided root intrusion that last year or you stayed ahead of the flushing protocol and you're able to save that tape for an extra season. That is what has an impact on the farming bottom line budget. Hey, Corey, I've got a question. You know, I, I know you have a fuel gauge in your truck. I've got one in mine. Mm -hmm. You'd never think about driving from Fresno to Bakersfield without one. <laughs> um, there's a lot of growers that don't have a soil moisture uh, sensor, right? They don't know how much water is in their tank. Um, why is that? I mean, I think the costs, I, I think they're really affordable. Do you, you have any, you know, ideas on, on, on why we don't, you know, why everyone's not using one? Yeah, I, I think adoption is, is slow in a lot of ways. And, and the reason is, is um, maybe there's a potential age gap there or a technology barrier. Um, could be, you know, something where um, it's going to a farm manager but he has six or seven supervisors working under him. And so getting that information from one person to the other over time has gotten better, but, it, but initially it was really hard. So bridging that gap was tough. One of the things that now we've worked on here with our GeneLogic platform is making it available and palatable to anybody in the operation. We have customers that they're 
their CEO or their key principal investor, he gets one report and that's the only thing he wants to look at, but the farm manager gets seven, but the field supervisors only get these two because that's what pertains to them. It's customizable. It's, again, it's driving data to an, an end user that can actually put it to use. And we've been able to do that. So I think we're going in the right direction in building that bridge and bridging that gap, but there hasn't been a, a lot of people in the market that have done that. So it's going to get better. It is getting better. Um, it's, it's just adoption and it takes time. Yeah, and I know, I know you're doing a great job on this and I've seen the adoption, right? It's, it's turning up like a hockey stick right now and no pun in the fact that you play hockey, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely happening and, and good job on that. And the other thing I noticed is that if I don't know how much gas is in my tank, in my truck, I'm stopping every chance I get to top it off. And as a result, I'm wasting my time doing that I'm buying too much. I'm buying a lot more than I need. And uh, who, who wants to be doing that on, you know, on their farm? Absolutely. Because that goes right, right back to the labor and, and, and water and things like that. So no, it's, it's really key. So that's, that's why I really wanted to hit, end with that point today and talk about it. Um, but in case anybody joined later, you want the Cliff Notes version, I uh, decided just to re-summarize it. Again, five keys for me in processing tomatoes is looking at proper field prep. So we talked about herbicides or soil bed prep, moisture planning, good irrigation system design. Again, starts with the design. <laughs> and then uh, the system installation needs to be done right. You need to make sure you select the right drip tape and then also consider your flushing and filtration. And then uh, fertility management, NP and K, but of course, don't forget calcium. Fertigation is a great way to apply most of these nutrients and help keep them in the profile. Irrigation management is total water to apply when to apply it, how long to apply it for. And then uh, data collection, we have satellite technology to help us. We have soil moisture probe data, and then we need to use this data to control our costs and our operations. Yeah, wow, thank you, Corey. Uh, this was so valuable. I didn't realize it was gonna be such a comprehensive uh, review of processing tomatoes, which is all the pieces people need to put this together to get the uh, uh, good yields that they, they, uh, they hope for and that they need really to be successful in business right now. So this was fantastic. I, I've learned so much today. I really appreciate it. I know all the viewers have as well. Uh, is there any one thing that you see right now that is creating the biggest challenge for uh, these growers uh, in, in this day and age? I think right now with the world uncertainty in economics, it makes things really challenging for a grower, not only in processing tomatoes, but uh, any grower in this country trying to make a decision on what to plant and when to plant and who to process with and who can market it for you. Um, again, we talked about some of the economic factors that affect the processing tomato market. I feel like this year um, we're going to have a, d a decent yield and we have, I'd say, lower acres than we've had traditionally. So I'm really optimistic about this market. I know there's many growers just here in Fresno County. We have about 80,000 acres of processing tomatoes right in my backyard and I'm proud to have it. And it's a big part of what we do. And you know, we're proud to be part of this industry as well. Yeah, great. Thank you again, Corey. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us uh, this afternoon. Uh, we're gonna be dark on this Friday due to the uh, Labor Day weekend. And I know everybody's been working hard. They, uh, they deserve a little extra time off this weekend, but we will be back a week from today. And we're gonna be talking about 
uh, great setups for indoor agriculture. And uh, this will be uh, full uh, uh, preparation from everything from lighting to irrigation to uh, fertigation systems. So look for that next week. We hope you'll join us. Remember, all of our recordings are on our website under Jane, uh, janesusa.com under training. And uh, we are on uh, popular podcast stations right now, including our iHeartRadio, which we added just this week. So you can catch all of our uh, sessions on there as well. Again, thank you. Thank you, Corey. And I uh, hope everybody has a great Labor Day and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone.